Hey everybody, Win Claybot here. Welcome to this incredible issue of Masters. And I love days like this where I get to interview smart, incredible, passionate people. Trust me, I have no problem interviewing somebody who's who's only about making money. Because I, I think that that's a very worthy, worthy cause and ambition. People who say that they don't care to make a lot of money, I believe that they would lie about other things as well. So there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But when somebody has that passion for building a company, being that, that entrepreneur, making money, but at the same time, every step of the way, using that platform, using their passion and their endeavors to put a spotlight on a cause that they're passionate about. And, and that's what this interview is going to be all about. I'm sitting here today with uh, Kelsey Moreira, who is the founder and fearless leader of a, a company called Dope, uh, spelled D-O-U-G-H-P, which we'll have her explain for us. It's a <laughs> mission-driven, edible, and bakeable cookie dough business that ships their product into thousands of households every single week. Since starting the company in 2017, after a decade-long tech career, she's appeared on ABC's Shark Tank. That's kind of exciting. Uh, Kelsey was also named Forbes 30 Under 30, which uh, those of you who know what that means, you know that that's huge. That's profound. As you'll learn through this interview, Kelsey is using Dope's platform for good, working to reduce social stigmas around addiction recovery and mental health. Kelsey left a 10-year career in, in tech at the age of 26 to start the company. Let's see, before Shark Tank, you were doing uh, $800,000 lifetime in sales, and now you're beyond, what, 10 million in sales? Is, is that accurate? Yeah, almost there, like 9.6 as of today. So <laughs> just getting right up close to 10 million, but pretty Well, let's just say by sure. the time this interview comes out in a couple of weeks, you're over there 10 you million. Can we just say that? We can just say it. It's pretty. You know, I, I like to tell the truth in advance. So let's just say that it's over 10 million. <laughs> what a great qualifier. That's the truth in advance. Yes, there you go. I love it. You're also rolling out in Costco and Walmart and other areas. I mean, pretty exciting uh, what's happening with your company. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Very surreal. Walmart and Costco hitting in the same month was like equally terrifying and thrilling all at the same time. But there's some heavy hitters that'll really put dope on the map as we try to make it a household name. Okay. So a 10-year career in tech, meaning you started at the age of 16. How old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, I'm 31 now into my glorious 30s. <laughs> they, they are glorious, especially uh, starting off the right way with what you're doing. And I think to jump into this, well, first of all, dope, D-O-U-G-H-P. Where did you come up with that name and why the spelling? Just give our listeners uh, some background behind that. Yeah. So it is dough with a P on the end. So we make cookie dough. You can eat it raw and you can bake it. So I was just desperate to find a really fun, punny name that would have dough in it when I was first coming up with the idea, you know, marketing lover by trade before and was destined to come up with the brand first before I even really had a recipe finalized. So dope was really this byproduct of wanting to have a pun. And my friend said, oh my gosh, like dope could have dough in it. As I'm explaining how I just want to make a really dope dessert company. <laughs> and so we stuck with that. We made our dope pun and you know, it's dope for cool and for being legit, which came into the tagline, making legit cookie dough. And it really is legit. You can eat it raw and you can bake it. It's made with real ingredients. You can actually pronounce and it's legit speaking truth to shared struggles. Like we'll talk about today. 
Wait, wait, you can eat it raw. Why? How, how do we do that? Yes. So, you know, we all sneak bites of cookie dough, like by ourselves one bite at a time, feeling super guilty because there's raw eggs in it usually and raw flour as well. So with dope, it's all heat treated flour. So we use commercially heat treated flour to kill the risk of E. coli and we don't use any raw eggs. So we use a flaxseed substitute for our eggs in our recipe. So there are no raw eggs and no one will get salmonella. A uh, double win there. You get to eat you as go. much that, of it that, as you that, want. That is a double win. <laughs> no salmonella. Okay, so tell us what some of the flavors are because you got real creative with all of that as well and the names of the flavors and all of that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, long time number one bestseller has been ride or die. That's our chocolate chip. And it's what people think of when they think of cookie dough. We used to have storefronts that people would come in and they'd see all the flavors and they would just be like, I'll just have the cookie dough and <laughs> we'd have to explain that they all are, but ride or die is really what you think of when you think of cookie dough. So, uh, chocolate chips are most popular. And then cookie monster is our runner up and has actually in the last few months been beating out ride or die in sales. Cookie monster is a blue cookies and cream cookie dough. So imagine like a boatload of Oreos smashed into cookie dough and it's turned blue for our favorite Sesame street character. So we've had some fun with different ones. Fairy dust is another great one. If you take a look at the characters we have for these online, someone told me that they think fairy dust looks like Elton John in a tutu. And now I can't unsee that. So feel free to take a peek at fairy dust and see if you see it too. Well, then you need to be sending him some uh, packages there uh, as you did for me. And thank, by the way, thank you for the shipment. It, none of it went to waste. If you know what I mean, it was eaten, it was gone. It was incredible. So congratulations. Thank you so much. It's good stuff. It's so fun to watch people actually try it and see their reactions. Like we used to in the stores, we went to a convention last week, Expo West, and, you know, just thousands and thousands of people getting to try a bite and to see their reactions in person is amazing. And to see their reaction to the mission as well. Um, in person, we kind of ditched the fancy booth idea and we put up a big banner as the backdrop that said in lieu of a fancy booth, we've donated $40,000 to the She Recovers Foundation to support mental health. You know, I, I, recovery, I, so. I saw that because yeah, you know, you're, you're a new company and to build a company, you need exposure and how you get exposure. My, I can't tell you how many of those conventions I've been to mostly in the professional beauty industry and now in, in, in the dog grooming and, and food industry. And you, and you walk these convention halls and there's just booth after booth after booth. And of course, that's where you get the exposure and you're there passing out samples and talking to people and doing everything you can to make connections. And yet you have an empty booth with just a big banner. Yeah, it turned some heads. And I will say everyone was taking photos of our booth and not of the, you know, really expensive kind of over the top stuff. So in doing very little, we actually stood out. It was like, here's our mission. Here's our delicious product. Here's some super excited staff and the founder who can't wait to meet you. And that said more than the booth ever could have, if it were kind of done up, like you're supposed to quote unquote. Congratulations. I, I bet you Thank got you. some, uh, maybe some pushback or some resistance from people like Kelsey, what the heck are you doing? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely a, a little like head turning at first when I shared it with, you know, our team and everything, but very quickly after reading it, you know, they're like, all right, just got goosebumps. Like this is going to be amazing. This is wow. the right way to go. So we had the support of our advisors and broker and all that good stuff before we went and they were just excited for everyone else to see it. Well, we're going to get into your personal story of uh, struggle with alcohol. We're going to get into your story of sobriety. We're going to talk about why you've chosen mental health and addiction recovery as, as that platform, you know, but tell us about Shark Tank, because I know people are thinking about that. So how did you make that happen? What was the experience like? 
did, did they invest in you? Tell us that story. Yeah. Shark Tank is such a blast. I mean, it's like kind of surreal still as sometimes people send me a screenshot or a photo of their TV, if they see a rerun of it coming up or something. And it's, it's hard to believe it really happened. I don't know anybody in show business. So I truly got in with just a open casting call in San Francisco. I sat on the curb waiting for my chance to shoot my shot. It was like 6am sitting outside in, in SF on market street, waiting with 500 other entrepreneurs that day. And more than 40,000 will apply each season. So it was already like feeling like a real long shot. You know, I thought I had a good chance because I've got a great product and a fun story to tell and a good reason behind why we're doing what we're doing. But like, you kind of feel like, well, so does everyone else. (laughs) and We'll see what happens. So just went in there and you get 90 seconds to pitch to the producers. There's a bunch of tables you get sent to after it's your time to go. And um, walked up to my table and did the 90 seconds. And by the time the 90 seconds had ended, they were like digging into the samples and asking more questions. So I think I was in there for something, maybe like five minutes actually in the first pitch. And it took six months from there of audition callbacks, like video submissions, um, just so many rounds to get through submitting what this might be like if you actually made it on and then was selected to film. And this was like two days before my three-year sobriety anniversary. And so it was a really fun thing. Like on my two-year, we had our first grand opening for Dope. And on the three-year, I was filmed for Shark Tank. So I've had a kind of fun run seeing like what's going to happen each September when I hit another sober birthday. And that was a big one. So got to be in front of, you know, Barbara Corcoran, Mark Cuban, Robert Hirchvek, Lori Grenier, and uh, of course, Mr. Wonderful was there as well. And it was a blast. I, I was so nervous. I was sure I was going to pee my pants before I walked down the hall <laughs> when they are about to open the doors. I'm a solo founder. So I was standing there by myself and they count down from some ungodly number, like a hundred, because there's so much happening, you know, off stage that you can't see that they're running around getting everything ready. And then the doors opened and like all of my nerves went away. And I just walked down that hall, hit my mark, nailed my pitch and went into questions a fun behind the scenes thing is it's actually an hour and 15 minutes that I was in there nonstop questions and discussion. They don't stop filming until every shark is out or you've made a deal. So I think the longest ever was like two and a half hours. And for each pitch, you really only see seven or eight minutes. So pretty crazy what goes on behind the scenes. Um, had a great discussion about the business, knew my numbers like front to back and felt really proud of myself for just the presentation as a business person overall. And had Barbara Corcoran say I was the most sophisticated store owner she'd ever met in her life, which was like, well, she's met a lot of store owners. So um, some great accolades about my skills as an operator, but they ended up all going out around primarily reasons for cookie dough not being good for you. And this idea that it's not healthy with the obesity epidemic. And, you know, I've got my own case to make around that, that it's, it's all about balance and it's meant to be a dessert. That's a little moment of self-care and just treat yourself. I want it to be nostalgic and delicious, just like what you ate as a kid. And we've got butter and brown sugar, but it's made with seven all natural ingredients that start every base recipe. And, and then we add Oreos or rainbow sprinkles or some fun stuff, but yeah, I just think life's about balance. So we agreed to disagree and left, um, still clicked my heels and, and waved them and thanked them as I left the tank and went on to, as you said, you know, grow it to more than 10 million in lifetime sales today. So I knew I was onto something and they would have been lucky to take a bite. <laughs> you know, what's really interesting is I wonder how many of the sharks after you left and the cameras weren't rolling, we're thinking, gosh, I wish I could have invested in that. <laughs> like, yeah, I wonder if they, yeah. <laughs> like they were just probably worried that, oh my, am, am I going to get called out for, for child obesity for investing in, in this product? But secretly they're like, gosh, this is such a good deal. And I wish I could be a part of it. 
Yeah. I mean, hilariously, like Mark Cuban, who was maybe most notable in saying like with the obesity ep- epidemic and he just can't get behind products that say, let's eat more. He had like devoured his entire sample plate, which was more than I thought anyone would actually eat. It was so that they could get just a bite of all the different flavors we had, but it was like eight small scoops of cookie dough. And, and uh, did, they, did they put he, that he on camera? <laughs> well, yeah, you see a few shots of him eating it up. So, um, yeah, he enjoyed the product himself, which is fun, but totally understand everyone has their own investment, you know, guidelines. And, um, I went on and found another investor a couple months later and have, have grown the business, uh, with relatively little capital for what a large company we have today and, and had primarily raised to open up brick and mortar storefronts in the past. So very proud of what we've done. Yeah. Well, this is great. Well, I think we'll probably get a chance to talk a little bit more about the company, but I think people have a really good idea on on what Dope is all about. How do they uh, order? How do they learn more about the product itself? I appreciate this. This is like a drool break. So if you're drooling, because we've been talking about so much cookie dough, you can get some at dope.com. So it's D-O-U-G-H-P.com. Connect with us on social at dope. But yeah, if you want to order it, we ship nationwide, even to two provinces in Canada. So makes a great gift. We've got a sober birthday box. Uh, regular birthday box, anniversary gifts, new baby gifts, all that good stuff. So uh, it makes a really fun gift too. Congratulations. Well, let's jump into this story. And and I think the best way to start that is just to ask you to tell your personal story, you know, high school, college, alcoholism, overcoming that you even uh, in the information that you sent to me to get ready for this. You mentioned uh, that there was some bullying in your past too. So, you know, just tell us your story. Yeah. So for me, I mean, the story starts perhaps back when my parents got divorced. I was six years old when they split and it shifted my life from having, you know, though parents who weren't getting along so hot as they did get divorced to having really two very inconsistent home experiences. And life was very different at my mom's house than it was at my dad's house. And I found myself, I think, leaning on accomplishments to get attention from my parents and, you know, some digging deep I've had to do over the past years to figure out like what led me to the troubles with alcohol that you mentioned. And I think not having kind of that consistency really led me to wanting to get attention. And at first with accomplishments. So even getting a B in school and I was absolutely hysterical, thought I had completely failed. It was so hard on myself. This perfectionism has been something that's stayed with me for a long time. I just have to find better ways to cope with it now, but perfectionism and anxiety were um, really like troubling me as a child, even in grade school years. So when I got the first opportunity to drink at a party, when I was 14, I drank until I blacked out that very first time. And it was like, the first time my mind had been quiet, you know, it was like, uh, I didn't have to be on, I didn't have to be, you know, my mind didn't have to be running and I could just pretend to be one of the kids carefree, like everybody else seemed to be and try to fit in with the cool kids. And I really leaned on alcohol through the years to do exactly that, to try and fit in and to stay, I guess, in touch with what I thought would be a cool persona in, in the school aged years, because I had been sort of swept out of that at 16, got the opportunity to work at Intel. You can see how this maybe compounded the issues with anxiety and stress and the ability to really over-apply myself with my perfectionism issues, um, which fuel the anxiety. And so my trouble with alcohol just carried on through the years. And you know, for me, very high functioning alcoholic to still be getting you know straight A's even through college. Um, had like a four point one two in high school and had great grades through college. But at the times, you know, in the evenings when I would go and drink and party, one drink was never enough, and I would drink till I blacked out. Um, 
you know, I'd say 75% of the time it was very, very challenging for me. And I'd wake up the next morning and say, I'm never going to do this again. I'm going to get it together. Here's my plan, you know, for the next time. And I'd try, I'm not going to have wine or I'm only going to have tequila or I'm only going to have this or that, you know, it was like, I really tried every variation I could to try and keep alcohol in my life and stop disappointing those that I loved who are close to me and disappointing myself scaring the heck out of my parents. You know, I was hospitalized a few times in college for overconsumption of alcohol and, um, you know, lost my belongings countless times. And by the time I got out of college, the fact that those issues didn't stop, you know, when I would still go out, I just, I couldn't help myself, but drink to excess. And I realized now kind of what a sit and coast pattern I'd been on, not really striving to get kind of Kelsey to her fullest extent. So when I hit my own rock bottom, you know, my chance to just stop digging. Uh, September uh, 14th of 2015, I was on a business trip in Barcelona and I started drinking around 10 in the morning and I came to at 3.30 in a stranger's apartment in Barcelona. And it was like the most clear morning picking up the pieces that I'd ever had where I said, I just, I am never going to do this again. I, I want to get sober. So I called my Nana who was 21 years sober when she passed away and told her I needed to get my stuff together and I was ready to get sober and I wanted her help. And she'd been waiting for that phone call for a long time. So, um, yeah, she told me to get my butt to an AA meeting (laughs) and let's do this thing. So I found an English speaking a meeting that morning in Barcelona and I have been sober, uh, what'll be seven years this September. So very proud of that decision. And it changed the whole trajectory of my life. Wow. Wait, what's your, uh, your sobriety date, a nine, 14, 15. Wow. Okay. So mine is a uh, September 15th. So uh, I'm going to m- mark that and, and remember you. <laughs> Love it. Around the exact same time. So birthday twins. <laughs> yes. That's nice. awesome. And I'm sure that many, many people can relate to the story or, or they they've heard somebody tell a similar story, but when you talk about being high functioning, just define that a little bit more for our listeners. Yeah. I think society gives this view of what an alcoholic should look like. And I think it's really important to share stories like mine and others who had everything seemingly together. You know, if you looked on the surface, it's like, she's got a great job, 10 years at Intel, like things were set. I could have stayed until I retired and had a, you know, great relationship, had friends. It just, it seems like everything's okay. You know, still had both parents in my life. It's like, um, you haven't gotten a DUI, all these things that in many ways for those struggling like myself make excuses where it's not that bad. You know, I haven't gotten a, a DUI yet, or I haven't, you know, been arrested yet. Like it was sort of all these excuses because it was so high functioning. Things seemed okay, but it really comes down to how do you feel about your relationship with alcohol and is it adding value to your life? And when I hit the point that I realized it was definitely not adding value and the negatives from it were far outweighing any positive benefit. It just, it didn't make sense to try to keep it anymore. I would have been doing the whole, you know, it's insane to keep trying the same thing multiple times and expect a different result. So we had to try something different and really make it stick this time. I'd tried to get sober as like a little reset when I was 21, did four months not drinking. And, you know, within a few weeks of drinking again, I was blacking out. So I had tried that and this, you know, full decision to really get alcohol permanently out of my life was the last step. Wow. Have you heard of the book, uh, sober curious? I have heard of it. Have not read it though. It's, it's pretty incredible. And one of the questions that she asks to the reader in that book is, would your life be better without alcohol? Mm. And I think a lot of people would say, yeah, even though they could say, well, I've never had a DUI, I, you know, but, but mm-hmm. to have 
let's say one day a year, you wake up with a hangover. So on that one morning, you would wake up and say, gosh, my life would be better without alcohol right now. But, <laughs> you know, which is not necessarily because I know that that for us to talk about this, I'm sure really upsets some people. Like, how dare you make that recommendation? How dare you discuss this? But there, there's a bigger message here. So you know, everybody has their, their own choices and their own relationships with alcohol and with other things in life, other choices that we make in life, including with cookie dough. We all have our own relationship with uh, <laughs> that we have to navigate through with, uh, as the sharks did on Shark Tank. Can I, right. can I have a relationship <laughs> with cookie dough? So, so I, I get it. But there's a bigger message here. And I'm wondering, because you're also talking about mental health and the stigma surrounding that, why are you pulling that into the same conversation with being a, a recovering alcoholic? Yeah, I love this question. And they are so hand in hand. It actually, even discussing that gives a chance to elevate this connection, right? Of like mental health and addiction recovery. If you're not taking care of your mental health so often, various addictions, substance use disorder is just one of them, but various addictions are filling this hole or blocking you from really dealing with the emotions and traumas of the past that are are lying underneath. And, you know, even the choice to just stop drinking, I still had to go to therapy, still go to therapy today to try and work through and identify what led me to drinking and come up with healthier coping mechanisms to support my mental health. And, um, that's something we really try to elevate at dope is like, let's give people, this conversation to evaluate what's working, what isn't working in their life, to talk about therapy, to recommend that people reach out and get help, whether it is for mental health struggles or that that's already turned into struggles with substance use or other addictions. It's really just a a conversation to let people know they're not alone. And I think they go so well hand in hand. Well, you say that it's okay to not be okay. Tell us what you mean by that. Yeah. There's like society wants you to have this face on all the time that everything's perfect. And even the, like, don't bother someone else with your troubles, you know, like don't be a downer. It's kind of this idea where someone asks, Hey, like, how are you when? And when says I'm great, how are you? And it's like, we're expected to say that I'm great. Um, something I've started recently is trying to ask someone instead of just, how are you? I'm like, Hey, give me like one high, one low from the last week. How's it been? And that, that is like a pause a second to be like, Hey, maybe everything's not awesome. And that's okay. Cause we're all going through such a shared experience here. We could just take that veil down and, and we don't have to keep, you know, BSing. It could just be all right to not be great today. You know, you have this other statement, which I absolutely love when I read it in the information that you sent to me, I was just thrilled and jumping up because I have said the same thing and I've had other friends say the same thing. And that is sobriety is your superpower. Explain that. Mm, Yes. I love this. You know, this idea and something I started saying kind of came up after, I think it was in 2019. And I was asked, you know, do you tell would be investors that you're sober? You know, I was going through a fundraise and, and pitching and whatnot. And when I was asked that, I thought, well, like, heck yeah. Like, I can't wait to tell them I'm sober. You know, I think it's one of the coolest things about me. And this idea that something that's otherwise been so uh, shameful or stigmatized or like something was wrong with you. I look at this decision to be in sobriety as like, 
something really cool and truly my superpower that I saw something wasn't working in my life. And I went and made a change. I didn't just sit and wallow in it. I didn't sit suffering. I didn't stay in the down. It's like, I'm actually in the up and the awesomeness. So I want to look at sobriety as a superpower and encourage other people to do the same. This idea that you need to just keep it to yourself and, you know, deal with it on your own. Don't tell anybody else that you've, you've struggled it's a loss for you to not be able to share it and get it off your chest and celebrate with other people how freaking awesome this decision was. But it's also a loss for others who would benefit from hearing your story, you know, from hearing the journey you went through and maybe resonating with it themselves and, and reaching out for help if they might not have otherwise. So sobriety as a superpower is something I'm trying to normalize. <laughs> you know, good for you. And I'm not sure where I got it from. Maybe a, a mentor planted that thought into my head because I had the thought even before I was clean and sober that when somebody was applying for a job, an opportunity with me and sobriety was part of their resume, I considered it to be a plus like, oh my gosh, they, they overcame that. They're going to be a great attribute. They're going to be a, yeah. a, a great team member because they've overcome that. But totally. may, maybe other people are people that were trying to advise you or thinking, no, people are going to see that that's a bad mark on your resume. Yeah. Or like you're risky or something or yeah. I'm so glad that you saw it that way. That is awesome. And there's big movements out there to try and help change the view of this in the workplace. The recovery friendly workplace initiative is really moving. It's in, I think 28 States now or something like that, but businesses can go and get designated as a recovery friendly workplace. And um, this Wait, whoa, idea whoa, whoa, that... whoa, whoa. I don't, you, I, that's news to me. Explain that again. <laughs> yeah. So dope recently became designated as a recovery friendly workplace. So it is like, Wait, I'm writing this tools. down recovery friendly workplace. Huge. Yes. So all the tools and training for leadership teams for management and even down individual staff, understanding how to bring up conversations around mental health, addiction recovery, and suicide prevention in the workplace and help break down that wall that employer and employee have had for so long where, you know, much like I was talking about with society, it's like this put on the front, you know, you need to be fine. You need to show up and do your job and work as work and leave your personal life at home. This idea of a recovery-friendly workplace is how do we celebrate this together out loud? How do we open up conversations, extend a hand for help inside the workplace and not expect that they go and deal with it outside or risk being fired if they bring it up, for example? Um, you know, there are still businesses where if a substance use disorder is discovered, you know, you're terminated immediately, which is probably the last thing someone who's struggling with substance That's use legal. disorder needs to happen. <laughs> that really is legal? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, if they're discovered to have been using certain substances and in some cases, you know, alcoholism or, or coming to work drunk, all of those things, right. Or, or well, I understand for, that, you know, coming. Yeah. Wow. Terms for firing on the spot. So yeah, I, various I remember, practices. Yeah. I remember years ago, people saying that, you know, you're supposed to compartmentalize your life. Okay. So here's your personal life, your relationships, here's your spirituality, here is your career and keep all those areas separated and divided. And I was always like, um, so in other words, I'm supposed to leave my soul at home when I go to work. <laughs> how, how do you do that? Yeah. It's like be a robot when you walk through the store and then you can go back to being a person when you leave. So yeah, I think there's been movements over the last, I'd say like 10, 15 years where you've seen employee resource groups for various religions coming to the workplace too. And this idea that, okay, let's find other like-minded people in our company, you know, to connect with. And that's gone across 
sexual orientation and religion. And now in some amazing examples like Salesforce, they have a sober force group. So employee resource groups for individuals in recovery, which I think is such a cool thing and something recovery friendly workplaces on the path to normalizing. Well, you know, one of my mentors, Marianne Williamson, used to say that every business is a front for a church. And when she said that, she wasn't talking about a religion, so to speak. A church is a place where people can go. It's a safe place. So I can go into that building or I could go to that congregation, pull out the religious aspect if you need to, but that's a place where I'm safe, where I feel loved, where I feel accepted, where I feel like I belong. And mm-hmm. she said that every business is a front for a church. So a pizza parlor is a front for a church. Uh, a hair salon is a front for a church where, gosh, I go there and yeah, I'm receiving these services or I'm buying these products. Um, but when I'm here for some reason, I just feel better about myself. I feel like, like they love me and they protect mm-hmm. me and I belong here. And every business can be that way. Yep. Community belonging. It's like becomes your family. And I mean, with the work from home kind of remote business, I'll say trend, but really like overtook everything in in 2020, you know, that's become even more important. It's like you spend so much of your time with those that you're working with uh, via Zoom, hangouts, whatever it may be. And you want to find more ways to connect and conversations like this really open the door. So when people say that there's a stigma with mental health and, and wellness, Describe for us in your words, what does that stigma look like? What does that mean? Yeah. And sometimes outwardly still occurring and sometimes the fear of the reaction is what's holding people back from sharing. You know, I do think more and more the conversation around mental health has become louder, especially these last few years, you know, pre-pandemic, when I said I worked on mental health, people would be like, oh, that's really nice. You're helping people with mental illness, not realizing that, you know, this is for everybody. Everybody needs to keep mentally fit and care about their mental health, just like their physical health. So that's become more normalized. But I think the stigma that surrounded it is exactly this idea that you need to be all on all the time and keep your problems to yourself. And even in many families who didn't really discuss emotions much growing up, I know a number of families, even in my personal circle who don't talk about emotions, don't talk about mental health and would be, I won't say outraged, but would be very unhappy to hear that anyone in their family was going to therapy as if it's a stain on the family, you know, that something wasn't perfect, that they needed help just to stay grounded and that they couldn't do it themselves as if that's some moral failing to not be able to go through it alone. But yeah, my belief is just nobody should go through this alone and going to see a therapist in hard times. Great. But going to therapy all the time. Awesome. You know, it's just a good check-in to have somebody else to go through this wild life that we live and all the experiences that come with it. So um, yeah, I think it's just a, a changing of times of being able to discuss it without fear of judgment in society. Before we move on from this topic, just could you send out a just a, a final message? Well, not a final one because I have a whole bunch of questions, but just a, a, a <laughs> message to to leaders, to entrepreneurs, to business managers of just the value of being transparent and how attractive that is. Oftentimes, as as leaders, what we share is uh, our victories, what Mm -hmm. we're so good at, our money, our accolades, all the things that we've accomplished. 
uh, but we edit the part of when we fell down, of when we screwed up, of, of when we got it wrong and had to get back up and dust ourselves off and change directions and get new mentors and go to therapy and learn something new and, mm-hmm. and really apply ourselves and start all over if that's what it took. And yet I think that those stories of transparency, those are the stories that truly, truly attract a following, people who want to belong to an organization that's making a difference. And that's yeah. a, a for-profit organization. So just a, a final message on that topic. Yeah. I mean, it's like you said, it's being real. It's like people want to be around someone and something and a movement that is real. And vulnerability is hands down the most powerful tool I have to attract and retain the most incredible talent and excite them about what we're working on and have them know that they're working for a real person who goes through ups and downs. And I've cried in an all hands meeting before. I've shared, you know, we do a mental health Monday post in our Slack every week. So internal communication and everybody shares one high and one low from their last week each Monday. And I go full on. And my husband as well, who's co-CEO with me, even more stigmatized perhaps is a, a male sharing, you know, emotional hard times. And he's opened up with the team uh, many times too. So it's just really cool to see what happens when you foster it from the top. And then you watch the other staff be able to share what's really going on in their life and uh, reach out and support them. And, you know, it's how family should be. And like I said, work is really your family. So building a a strong, powerful for-profit team, like you mentioned, who's going to work harder than ever. It has to start with some vulnerability and really growing a closer, more meaningful connection with your staff. That's incredible. Okay. Let's talk about being a, an entrepreneur. And you, know, you were talking about the things that you struggled with in high school and being a perfectionist and that you were so hard on yourself. And, and I'm wondering how many of those traits, things that you struggled with now serve you well today. Cause I, I always like to tell people that ADD has been very, very good to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I think the perfectionism is something I still struggle with. And in many ways, like you said, it serves you because it, and it sort of becomes this little cycle where it proves itself. Like I'm glad I was so over the top on all these little details. Cause then that's the feedback you got from customers that those little details are what they loved. So I have been, you know, I'll say obsessive over what I've created and down to every little detail, trying to make sure it all makes sense. It all comes together with this one message and um, that we can have the best impact we can on our customers. So the perfectionism is a, a give and take, you know, especially with being an individual contributor at Intel. You know, I went from solely individual contributions. I had managed a couple of interns before to starting my own company, which of course in the beginning is like team of one and it's just me. Uh, as I started to get employees, you know, it was very quickly shot into this CEO seat to be you know, a team leader and to delegate and be able to, you know, use others help and, and train and, you know, test and learn and, and have people grow into their roles at the company. So it did take a lot of personal development over the last few years to be more comfortable and more supportive, knowing how to run a team and to be able to give away some of the control. I think at the end of the day, perfectionism is being a bit of a control freak. So uh, entrepreneurship, you know, there's some things I've kept on my own plate, figured out, you know, where my zone of genius is, what are the things that I need to keep in my wheelhouse, both for my own personal enjoyment. Cause I, I love them times flying by when I'm doing it, but also to allow the team to support us and be able to do more. I can't do it all. Um, so it really does take a, a very small, but mighty village. So what advice do you have for young aspiring entrepreneurs? 
Yeah, I have a few tips. I think my first one is to never say no to an introduction. I think that's been one of the biggest things for me. Even meeting you when, you know, was a an introduction from a friend of the past and, you know, different connections I've made over the years that have said, "Oh, you've got to know so and so." And maybe at first glance you're like, why would I need to know them? You know, sometimes I get a really off the wall intro and I, I can't quite see the the why, but I take it, you know, even a 15 minute call, um, as busy as you get, as big as the company grows, just never say no to an introduction. Cause you don't know what could come from it. Another one is like, stay focused on what makes you different. It's very easy as the years go on to get an earful of ideas, uh, every single day of what else you should be doing. Even today, I was just reading a comment from a customer saying like, make a gluten-free dough, get with the program. Everyone's gluten-free these days. And, you know, it's like, I have to stick to what makes us different. We are honestly standing out for not being a health food product. Like there are other healthy cookie doughs that are gluten-free and vegan and have adaptogens in them. And it's just not going to be dope's thing. So stay focused and, and that'll help you grow. And my last tip would be in the vein of the conversation we've had here, like just be a good human in whatever you do. If you're going to build something off the ground or you do have something started, think about how it could be for more than just you and how what you've built could help serve others, both in what you talk about, what you donate to. You really have a platform when you have a company. It's a lot more than money. When did you make that decision that it has to be you know, more than just making money? Because what I find, like I, I believe that the for-profit world could learn a lot from the nonprofit world and vice versa. The nonprofit world could learn a lot from uh, running a legitimate for-profit business, meaning even in the nonprofit world, you need to spend money on marketing or find the best way to get the word out about the your nonprofit organization and the and the work that your brilliant charity does, but you still got to fit within a budget. You know, donors are, are giving you money and, and they want to know that the money is going to where it needs to go. And so so running yeah. a legitimate business with salaries and rent and all that is, is important. But in, in the for-profit world, what I find is that a lot of successful entrepreneurs, they just put their head down and they work and they work and they work and they work. And, you know, 10 years later, they bring their head up and think, wow, look how successful I am. I'm making a ton of money, but I haven't done anything to give back. Now I need to give back. And it it sounds to me like you were already making that decision before you had a dollar in sales. You already knew that there had to be a purpose and that purpose was something greater than just making money. Yeah. I think some things that fueled this for me with what I've created with Dope is coming off that career with Intel. And I saw how Intel, though I can't say when they started their philanthropy, maybe it is that example you gave of a little down the road, but they do make just an incredible amount of money. And on the same hand, I saw so much of the philanthropy that they do. They, in fact, sent me, uh, it was right after that Barcelona trip when I got sober, just about a week later, I was leaving for the Philippines for two weeks for a volunteer project completely funded by Intel. And my job at the time uh, when I left Intel was running a program to fight online harassment, working with other nonprofits, um, using machine learning and just some incredible stuff from, again, like this tech company who could have just said, yeah, we just, we sell processors. We do our thing. We don't need to worry about any do good efforts. And I was kind of getting my hands really like straight on what the world could look like if a company like Intel can, can support it. Maybe I can too, when I start my own thing. So when I started dope, the initial is like, I love cookie dough. Other people love cookie dough. Let's see if I can make this a business. And, you know, within six months I started the dope for hope initiative. So all of these ways that we have an impact today really started to come to life towards late 2017. It was my two-year sober birthday, that grand opening I mentioned. 
I had put on the Facebook invite, if you come up and say it's dope to be sober to celebrate the founder's two-year sober birthday, you'll get 20% off. And we were flooded with messages from people being like, you know, I'm a couple weeks sober. Do you know of any good meetings in the city? Or someone saying he was 13 years sober and had never told anyone. And I was just like, this is it. Like, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to talk about. I got my freaking megaphone and I haven't stopped talking about it since. So, Oh my um, gosh. I I got goosebumps with that one. mm. Yeah, it's it's so impactful and it, and the messages like that don't stop, you know, over these years it's like that's what keeps me going as an entrepreneur. I almost can't imagine running this company without a mission because it is so hard. You're on the ground in tears like once a quarter at least, you know, something feels like it's just fully crashing down but you pick yourself up and you keep going because of the impact you're having. And like I have a little folder of all the emails and messages from people who, you know, we've touched them and Expo West another example there of like getting to see that human impact of our mission. I had someone come up and say how she and her boyfriend are big fans of dope. It's his three year sober birthday today. Would you film a video message for him? Uh, We just, we just love you and love what you're doing. And so we filmed this message and he ended up emailing us just a couple of days ago saying like how much the video meant to him. And he's watched it a million times. He said, so it's just really cool to know that like we're really making something happen. And like these hard days are worth it. Cause there's one more person like Josh out there who just hit his three-year birthday that we can touch and let him know he's kicking butt and to just keep going. You know, you, you mentioned the one person who had 13 years of sobriety and had never told anybody, you know, to be able to give people permission where you create that safe place, you bring up the conversation and the conversation of mental health and, and addiction and, Whatever it looks like, and you could describe it because mental illness has many, many faces, but for you to open up the dialogue and you give people that safe place to talk about it absolutely can be life-changing. Mm-hmm. You also said the word that you wanted to have a mission. And I, I like that because a lot of people, they just have a job, a job for a paycheck. I got to pay the bills. And so I I show up, I, I like to tell that joke. This woman is giving a, a, a tour of her business, of her store. And the person asks, uh, so how many people work here? And the business owner responded with, oh, about half, about half work here. <laughs> and the reason why that happens is because people aren't engaged. They're engaged with their time, meaning they, they have a job, they need the paycheck, they got to pay the bills. So they're physically there, but they're not there with their passion, with their creativity, with their teamwork, with their hearts, with, mm-hmm. with everything else that they have to give. And, and oftentimes when people are not engaged, what do we want to do? We just want to fire them. You know, you, you can't fire your way into building a better team of people. And I think how you build a, a wonderful team of people is that you give people permission to bring all of this. You know, I'm, I'm not a compartmentalized individual. I have many assets many facets of who I am and what makes me, me. And to know that I can bring all of that with me into the workplace and that I'm honored, that I'm celebrated, that's powerful in a company. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and it, it goes both ways. It's amazing for like the employer uh, to have a team that's so excited and it's amazing to give opportunities to those who need it. Like the second chance employment aspect, something else we've got from the recovery friendly workplace we helped a gentleman who was coming out of rehab and, and needed to get a job. And he is our fulfillment center um, manager was just telling me yesterday how he is like hands down, like her son. Now she's like, I would do anything for this kid. He's really trying to get his life back on track. And he's just been like the best hire we could have ever found. And, and he's so excited to have the opportunity. So 
Um, it's just a beautiful thing. What, what happens when you're okay with everybody and their lives bumps and all, and know that they're going to do something great if you give them a chance. That's awesome. Yeah. I have, I have to say you you speak really, really well. And is that trained or did it just come natural to you? And I, and I bring that up because I know some incredibly smart, smart business people, but they don't speak well. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they stumble when they get in front of their own team members to talk about the vision of the company and what's going on. And I'm always challenging business entrepreneurs to become motivational speakers because when you can move an audience, that's powerful. Did you get training for that? I did not, but I really thank you for saying that. That's so kind of you. Um, I just have always loved to speak. Even when I was little, my parents used to joke that I was going to run for president one day. That dream has very quickly faded, but you know, I just was always a really outspoken little girl and was in like poem reading competitions in school, did like all the narration for the play. I'd always volunteer to be the narrator. And then when I got into college presentations and whatnot, I just loved it. I really loved speaking to crowds and hope to be, you know, a public speaker, motivational speaker one day when I have a bit more time on my hands. (laughs) One year time, you're going to be a motivational speaker. Okay. There you go. Yeah. And even in small form, I love it. I've, I've been hired to do a few small things, even over zoom, just different companies and teams. And it's just great. I, I love being able to share my story and I'll scream it from any rooftop. Uh, someone just has to let me come on their, their rooftop and tell it. Oh my gosh. Well, that's what I've done. So I, I, I can't wait to take this to other opportunities and venues to share you and your voice and your passion. That's incredible. Thank you. Lynn. You know, you, you said you're an outspoken little girl uh, before our daughter was born. She turns 10 in a couple of weeks before she was born, we said, yeah, we want a little girl that has a voice and that's outspoken mm. and that speaks her mind. And guess what? We've, we've got one. And every day it's like, oh my gosh, why did we let this girl have a voice? <laughs> pretty funny. Yes. She negotiates everything. Everything is in negotiation. It's hilarious. I love it. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, it's it's her what well. we want, but it's man, oh man. Okay. I, I can't believe we have to start wrapping this up. So I asked you what your core values are. And you shared with me three of them. One is to be a pathfinder. What do you mean by that? Mm, this idea that you know there are no obstacles in life, just new paths forward. We were just going through that this week. We're about to launch at Costco. And the Mastercase supplier just dropped the ball, didn't show up on Tuesday that was supposed to happen. And you know, we had to essentially go out to our LinkedIn audience. And I said, you know, emergency mode, like who can help? I'm I'm not going to let this stop me. We even got a comment from someone saying like, there's no way that you'll be able to get this order in a few days with a custom print and perforation, et cetera. And I said to myself, I literally thought of this statement, like this is not an obstacle. I just need to find a new path forward. And sure enough, we've got someone who just ran a 24 hour print job, like worked overnight to get us 1600 boxes and they'll be delivered on Saturday. So I just find a way, you know, nothing can stop me. There's just a new path we've got to find. Oh my gosh, that's your next motivational seminar right there. Be a pathfinder. <laughs> that I love message it. alone. Your, your second core value that you shared with me is to spread joy. What do you mean by that? Just everywhere. This is, yeah, this is a core value even of dopes. Like everywhere, every interaction, whether it's around the product or a conversation we're having, I just want to make the person I'm talking to leave a little bit happier than how the call started, spread a little bit more joy and hope and inspiration and everything I do. So I just try to keep my, you know, smile on vulnerability open and spread some joy and have meaningful conversations everywhere I go. I love that. Well, you're selling cookie dough. So that makes it a little bit easier. It's a you know, sweet and I, and, but I'll tell you something. When I go to my dentist, um, I leave there more joyful. 
And I hate <laughs> going to the dentist, but there's just something from, from when I'm greeted to everybody that I am connected with there in that dental office, I leave there more joyful. So there you go. I love it. <laughs> Even in the most challenging of circumstances. Exactly. Um, and then the third core value that you shared with me is to be a good person, building a business to help others. Yeah. Good for you. Good for everybody else. It's like, it's the only way I see it possible to make it through how challenging this journey is, is to know that you're doing it for more than just yourself. So be a good person. Well, before we wrap things up, tell us about Dope for Hope. Yeah. So Dope for Hope is really the initiative that I started in in 2017 to try and wrap together our, our goal of breaking the stigma around mental health and addiction recovery. So we have one portion for our community. So we share on social media, mental health Mondays, we do a little email blast, always bringing up this conversation loud and proud for coworkers. So this idea of inside the company, the recovery friendly workplace initiative and what we've done there and for nonprofits like she recovers foundation. Um, we donate 1% of all of our sales company wide to she recovers spend more than $60,000 donated to this cause in the last two years alone. So we're really excited about the impact we can have financially too, to help a wheel that's already in motion, just go faster. Kelsey, you are incredible. I know people are going to love this interview. Again, you, you speak well. You have great, great business advice, leadership advice, all wrapped up into a cookie dough company that has a mission, that has a purpose. And so, Kelsey, just, you know, thank you so much. And, and how can our listeners find out more information about you? Awesome. Wynn. Thank you for the kind words and for having me on. It's really an honor to share my story with your audience. So I appreciate that. If anybody wants to connect with me, I am Kelsey Moreira. It's M-O-R-E-I-R-A on LinkedIn, very active on there. So come over and follow what's going on there at dope, D-O-U-G-H-P on Instagram. And of course, if you are hungry after this interview, just dope.com and you can get some cookie dough. So thanks again, when you are the best, <laughs> appreciate you're, you. You're amazing. And, and I have to do a shout out to our very dear friend, uh, Dr. Sue Swearer. Yes. University of Nebraska. <laughs> She's the one that made the connection for us. And I love that woman, the work that she does. Oh my gosh. She is amazing. And funny enough, it connects back to when I mentioned the hack harassment program I was working on at Intel. That's where I met Sue. She was advising, you know, from a clinical standpoint, a psychologist standpoint on uh, how to address online harassment. So love that I got to meet her through my days at Intel. And then she actually helped us with our dope for hope pledge and some other mental health stuff we've sent out through dope. So she's been a great, a great oh, person. The work in my that life. She does uh, sur- surrounding anti-bullying initiatives and She also worked with Lady Gaga on her Born This Way Foundation. What a great lady. So, Sue, if you're listening to this, uh, Kelsey and I love you. We love you. (laughs) That's awesome. Thanks, Kelsey. You're amazing. Thank you, Wynn. Have a dope day. (laughs) I love that. 